Hi, podcast listeners. Each week, our subscriber base continues to grow, and that means people are finding us. In order to help more people find us, we have a favor to ask. We're looking for some testimonials and reviews of the show. So if you enjoyed this program every week, we'd love for you to send us an email with your thoughts on why you listen. You can shoot them over to Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. And while you're doing that, you can rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Thanks so much for your support and for your help. For the week of January 13th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome in Washington, D.C. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. Always great to be with you. Also, here are my two co-hosts in downtown Washington is the always good-natured Catherine Hamilton. She's a partner at the clean energy public policy consulting firm 38 North Solutions. Catherine, how are you? Are you defrosting after the polar vortex? I am. We made it through that, and then now we have this kind of freezing drizzle rain thing, and then we're supposed to get really warm. This adaptation to climate stuff is harder than I thought it would be. (laughs) And in New York is the amiable and lovingly combative Jigger Shaw. He's an energy futurist and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, how are things in the Big Apple? They're fantastic, and you know we're finally above freezing again, and uh, we're supposed to be 55 degrees next week, so... So are you finding this adaptation as difficult as Catherine? You know, I'm from Chicago. We're more hardy than the Virginians. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we've got an addition to the panel today. In Flagstaff, Arizona, is the one and only Andy Cruz. Uh, Andy is a well-known pioneer in distributed wind. He founded Southwest Wind Power, one of the former leading small wind turbine producers in the U.S., And he now runs his own boutique consulting firm, Stream Energy Consulting. Uh, He's looking at more than just wind. He's looking at renewable energy project development. But he's got a wealth of experience and knowledge about the small wind industry, and we've brought him on to share some of it. Andy, how are things out in Arizona? Oh, fabulous. It's, It's just blue skies. I'm really enjoying it. Did you get any, did you get hit by the polar vortex? No, we were we we fortunately it were far enough south and far enough west where um, it didn't really touch us at all. It kind of hit the Midwest and everybody in the east, but we're okay. Well, we're glad to have you on. And uh, as our listeners may have guessed, in our first segment, we're going to talk with Andy Cruz about the wind market, the good, the bad, and the ugly about what's happening in small wind. Then, in our second segment, after we leave Andy, we're going to chat about the widening gap between Red America and Blue America and what that means for energy. And in our third segment, we're going to talk about the revived solar trade case here in the U.S. Just when you thought it might be over, it begins again. At the end of the show, we'll tell you something you do not know. Okay, onward. So our first topic is a little unique in that we're not tying it to a particular news story like we usually do. And uh, to be honest, really, when was the last time you heard about a big piece of news in the small wind industry here in the U.S.? You likely haven't compared to other technologies because the market is still pretty small. Now, don't take this to mean that we're bashing the technology. You know, it's proven and effective, but the small wind industry has suffered from a lack of cohesion, um, from false promises, from what small wind pioneer Mike Berge calls bozos and shysters, as well as inconsistent policy support. So what does the industry need to break through? 
To answer that, I think we should first set some parameters and define what the small industry is and how big it is. Andy, how do you define small wind? And when you look at that definition, what does the market look like in the U.S. today? So small wind, you know, is defined by Department of Energy, and it, it, it does have different definitions around the, the world, especially as large-scale wind turbines have grown. But in the U.S., it's pretty much 100 kilowatt rating or smaller. And and how many projects do we see in that size range? You know, there is, gosh, you know, when I was in, involved at Southwest Wind Power, we manufactured over 175,000 small wind turbines, just that company alone. And, uh, you know, you look across the other different manufacturers out there, the Burgies of the world and Gaia's and, and, and Proven's, and they're all companies that have um, – um, you know, they're in the th- many thousands of turbines, but nothing quite like, you know, the scale of, uh, of solar, of course. And do you guys actually have a revenue number, like annual revenue numbers for the small wind industry? You know, the number that's been thrown around is about $100 million a year collectively, not just in the United States, but pretty much globally. And, and that number's been – it's probably a little bit less in the last few years, um, you know, but uh, it's still a, a pretty small number relative to other technologies. So why is it so small? You know, um, I'll tell you, you look back at the at the beginning of the bump that we had in 2005, 2006, um, you know, we were all selling at, at a record rate and every year sales were increasing by 50 to 80 percent. And it was pretty exciting. But I think a lot of what happened, one of the challenges with, with small wind is you basically, for the most part, you know, you prepay for your power. You know, you'll save money when you install one generally. But um, you you buy you, the, all the equipment up front, and solar did something that was very intriguing, and they developed the whole leasing and PPA structure programs, and that allowed consumers to buy it over time, you know, get their savings over time through a lease and maybe a small buyout. And so I think that's one of the most critical things that's really um, um, challenged the industry is, is, except for a new company called United Wind, um, you still basically have to pay, you know, twenty-five to eighty thousand dollars down on yeah. your on your your machine, and and that's what's it's, it's, that's where the challenge is. Yeah, I saw last year United Wind signed a leasing agreement with Berge Wind Power, and they were financing ten kilowatt systems from from Berge. They had a twenty-five million dollar fund that they hope to grow to around fifty to a hundred million dollars this year. But really surprising, this is the first time this has happened for the small wind industry. And I'd love to hear Jigger's thoughts on this as well, uh, because this is what you live and breathe in terms of business model innovation. Well, you know, I think Andy and I talked about this. When was this? 2008, maybe? But actually <laughs> putting a, a fund together. Um, yep. Just just for the record, Andy and I um, have a long track record. He, <laughs> uh, he offered me my first job out of college in 1996 and then promptly rescinded the offer after my summer break. Um, so, so I've hated him for a very long time No, <laughs> but, um, but I think we had serious conversations about third party owned wind in 2008. And honestly, the biggest challenge of the wind business is when you have a business of a hundred million dollars total per year, um, I mean, doing $25 million, which is what Russell is attempting to do is no small feat. And most people like Sun Edison or other folks don't really want to get into, an industry to do the first five million. Is the solar industry a good channel for small wind developers, Andy? You know, it depends on who they are. If it's a solar city or a Sun Edison type, probably not because they're highly focused. 
they've got a, a routine that's down it's very refined you get some of the smaller dealers um then yes i mean the big difference between an installation of of, of wind and versus solar you know solar is about a 80 percent electrical and 20 percent mechanical installation whereas wind is about an 80 percent mechanical you know which is digging you know holes for foundations and pouring concrete and all that stuff and 20 percent electrical so it's kind of opposite in that regard so you have to have the, the knowledge on both sides um but but yeah the smaller dealers it still is an opportunity for them hey andy it's Catherine. is um is there also an issue with uh with customer with trying to get customers with customer acquisition um since it seems like it would be more disaggregated than rooftop solar you know, it's a, it is a different market. So, uh, solar is largely an urban technology, um, where this is pretty much a rural technology. You know, I I was driving all around the upper state uh, New York a few weeks ago and looking at all the farmers and talking to uh, prospective farmers who are installing uh, endurance uh, wind turbines. And, you know, they love it because they got the wide open space. They got all the right characteristics. But clearly, yeah, it's a it's a it's a different model. You really don't want them in the city. Well, that brings me to a really important point here, and that is a lot of folks are developing these rooftop turbines for urban environments, <sighs> vertical axis wind turbines that <sighs> they say can capture the wind that whips around the, the roof, whatever, what have you. And I hear you scoffing in the background there. <laughs> Tell me why this is uh, something that inventors continue to bring up but have no success with. I know. It's amazing. It's sort of like you know, certain, certain versions of concentrated solar too. It's, you know, it's like they fall in love with an idea because, you know, their hat is blown off their head, you know, when they're on top of a roof or something. And all of a sudden they, they think they're going to be the next billionaire. You know, there's a whole thing called turbulence intensity that occurs around structures. And, and if you don't put that winter, and it could be anywhere, it could be out in an open field somewhere, um, you know, or it could be, you know, in a, a treat area. Um, the, the, all the difference is the same is that you have to be looking at the site and it's not as it's way less forgiving than solar is. And if you don't get it right, it's going to be wrong. And people put these things on a roof and you just got all this wind and this turbulence. And we call it dirty air. And it's pretty much useless energy. It's, you know, it, it really is a terrible, terrible idea. And there's never been a company out of all the millions of dollars that have been spent on it has ever been successful in that market, except for pinwheels and artwork. And and a lot of those people are what Mike Berge calls the bozos and the shysters. <laughs> Yeah, and, and there's a kind of a well. I agree with what Mike says. It's it's a fine line because there's those people that honestly are convinced that this is a great idea, but you know, but you know, it comes to, and you start to ask them about the laws of physics or the Betts limit or something. They go, huh? You know, yeah. and so maybe I'd throw in there a little bit of ignorance as well. <laughs> Andy, I have another question for you. Um, so we've talked a little bit about business models and technologies. How about policies? Um, you know, Navigant Pike said that you know, the global market for small wind turbines is going to double in the next five years. And I'm looking at the bonus depreciation that just expired and the fact that the investment tax credit for wind is going to go away in 2016 for small wind. You know, how do you see the policy front evolving or, or will that not have anything to do with the global market growing? Well, you know, I was the champion on the small wind tax credit. I spent two years on Capitol Hill learning about uh, how to be a lobbyist, and I never signed up as a lobbyist, but, you know, it was quite an event, and, of course, we were successful at, at the ITC. Um, 
you know, it is important in the U.S. It, it certainly is, and and I think like like SIA and, and the solar side, um, we'll be looking at finding some kind of extension. So just give us a little bit more, the industry a little bit more of a a boost into the next, uh, you know, just for a few more years because we are behind, and as an industry, and I think that, you know, a, a bit more of a push, you know, with some great technology that's that's been evolving is going to make a difference. So, Andy, you know, I mean, in 2003, I mean, well, you and I worked together with the WIA back in 1997 when I was at Atlantic Orient Corporation doing wind. Yep. But I think, you know, in 2003, SIA basically went under and uh, restarted itself with six major donors. So the modern solar policy movement really started in 2003, 2004. Why hasn't distributed wind energy, you know, really you know, benefited from that boom. I mean, I mean, and who's to blame? I mean, ultimately, you know, distributed wind is a hundred million dollar business. We've got a fifteen billion dollar solar business today. They were both roughly the same in two thousand three. So, you know, what happened? You know, it's a good question, Jigger. I I would say, you know, first of all, it it kind of comes down to distributed wind is or small wind has been around since what the nineteen twenties. Um, it was the actually the first distributed scale energy in rural America, and but fast forwarding to today or even to then, um, you know, it just didn't seem as sexy to a lot of policy developers, especially at DOE um, and at, um, you know, at, at, at the state level as well. You look at the funding that DOE puts into solar, it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars for um, market development, for manufacturing improvements, for all kinds of things. Um and then you look at uh, small winds budgets, about seven million dollars. So it's it's a fraction. And so I think a lot of that just because of the lack of sexiness of solar versus this kind of older generation technology is has been one of the big factors. And is that a failure of organizations coalescing together and really pushing this in the policy sphere? I know OWEA has tried to develop some small wind programs. Is that just lip service, or are they actually attempting to bring small wind to scale in policy? You know, I think some of it was lip service. Um, you know, the other side of it, too, is you had with distributed wind, you just have a lot of kind of smaller family type operations. You know, the company that I, you know, was involved in, it actually became very corporate. And we had, you know, a lot of employees and, and it was run with VCs um, and it was quite different. But for the most part, it was these very small companies. And you look at on the solar side, you had the likes of some of the biggest companies from Siemens to uh, even at that time Shell and and Kyocera. And, and then there's all the sub companies that are making the ingots materials. All these people were coalescing together and developing campaigns where they could put a lot of money into marketing and getting the, the message out there. So some of it was just the backing of very big corporations as well. Well, and so that, you, get, that lowers the political power of the groups as well. Uh, certainly. But you've been around a long time, Andy. I mean, you know, like, I mean, let's not talk about wind for a second. Let's just talk about everybody simultaneously. Yeah. So you've got solar and then you got everybody else. So you got yeah. geothermal, <laughs> you got heat pumps, you got, you know, solar, hot water. I mean, solar you know, thermal, like yeah. given all of, yeah, all the experience that you have, like what's, What's your advice to those industries if they actually wanted to get to the, you know, sort of 50 to 100 percent growth levels um, sustainably to get to the billion dollar market size? 
another great question. So at the end of the day, in my view, it's all about levelized cost of energy. When you look at deploying technology, whether it be any of those that you're talking about, especially under the energy producing side, so it kind of leaves out some of solar thermal and perhaps geothermal heat pump. But, you know, the, these main energy producing technologies, the, the winning game is that if you can demonstrate reliably that you can produce the lowest kilowatt hour cost in your technology, that's what's going to really win it. Win it, you know. Combine yes, solar policy, or, you know, policy whether it be solar or wind. Um, combine all that stuff and tax credits and whatnot. But bringing all it together, you know, we're about electricity generation. It's not about solar or wind. We're providing kilowatt hours to an application. I don't know, Andy. So- it's exactly that thinking I think that's gotten all of you in trouble. I mean, solar was not cost effective in that under that thing in two thousand and seven. But we still crushed you guys. And so, well, I mean, but, I just think that thinking is the reason why you guys all, like, are jealous. Well, <laughs> I don't know if we're jealous, but, you know, but but see, you go to California in 2007. They had, they had $3 a watt rebates for solar, you know, cash rebates at 3 bucks a watt. Plus, you had – it was a limited back then. It was very – that was 2005 when the, the – uh, But then 20%. it's not about levelized cost of energy then. Then it's really about political power. It, well, yes, but ultimately you buy down the cost of that, and that cost got to, you know, something that was competitive. So you got to you got to put that in there as part of the the cost structure. So if you looked at the industry today, what gives you hope that there are forces at play that will help small wind grow from where it is today? <laughs> Um, I think financing and the leasing program, I mean, of, of course, Jigger is like the, you know, godfather of this, of, of this whole leasing program and, and PPAs. And, and, you know, had we had as an industry figured that out a long time ago, I think this story would be quite different. You um, had your chance, Andy, in 1990. <laughs> I know, you're hey, right. there's still a chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pretty technology agnostic nowadays, you know, with my new my new world is 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 a little different, but it's uh um you know, I want to stay focused on uh, you know, and, and the bigger picture is just we we have to have that that financing mechanism put into place today. And that's what's going to make if it doesn't work, if you can't get that financing component in there, you know, it's going to be a very tough 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 road for the industry long term. Well, Andy Cruz is the managing director of Stream Energy Consulting and the founder of Southwest Wind Power. He joined us from Arizona. What a fun conversation. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Hey, great. Thank you for everybody, and and, uh, nice talking to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Andy. And we turn our attention from the state of a market to the state of our nation, or more appropriately, the state of states. Today, 37 of 50 states are under single-party control by either Democrats or Republicans. That's the most in more than five decades. Democrats control the governorship and legislature in 14 states, and Republicans hold that control in 23 states. That gives governors more room to do what they want without compromise. It emboldens national lawmakers and makes them less likely to compromise as well. And it inevitably creates a rift on energy issues. So let's explore this a little bit more. Um, Catherine, we've talked about the national angle to the politics of energy many times, but we haven't looked in great detail at state politics. I mean, we've talked about some of the lessons from Georgia and North Carolina and so forth, but let's look at it from this framework of party control. How much of an influence do you think this single party control issue is actually having on how states are thinking about energy and, and how that's bleeding into national politics? Um. 
I, I would take let's look at Michigan, uh, where it's it's sort of a blue state. And yet there's a huge Republican, uh, you know, there's a Republican governor. And um, and yet, you know, a, a lot of um, Democrats that are in their congressional delegation, Michigan's whole renewable driver is economics. It doesn't really have anything to do with politics and politics should be taken out of it. Although there is a group of Republican right wing folks that are getting together to say we should support renewables because it helps the economy of the state. So I honestly think you there are a lot of other things to look at than just straight politics. I think we have to look at the economy of each state. I think we have to look up at the makeup of urban versus rural in each state. Um, We have to look at the energy resource mix. For example, you'll have a state uh, like Louisiana and Mary Landrieu is a Democrat, but her rise to become the chair of Senate Energy and Natural Resources is giving renewable folks a little bit of heartburn because she's from an oil and gas state. The same with Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who is a Democrat, but is very much a coal guy. Um, Mark Pryor, who's going to have a pretty difficult reelection campaign in Arkansas, again, more in the more in fossil resources in the state. So I think it has a lot to do with the resources in the state, has a lot to do the, with the economics. And the, the tricky thing is, at least in the Senate, you know, every state gets two senators. So no matter what the population is, no matter whether it's the largest or smallest state, they're going to get, whether it's rural or urban, they get two senators. And so it makes for interesting uh sort of an interesting way to cut it on the senate side but i think it's not necessarily political um based on on national delegations when you get into the states yeah i i think there is a lot more than just the political divide but it's very clear that in some of the states where lawmakers are trying to repeal renewable energy standards those are in republican controlled states so you look at uh for example uh Issues in North Carolina, that is a state with a Republican governor and a Republican legislature. Um, you look at Pennsylvania, where they've significantly scaled back their renewable energy promotion. You look at Georgia, where they've had a number of fights over uh, renewable energy promotion. Ohio, where they're trying to repeal their state's energy efficiency standard and renewable energy standard. Uh, Florida, where you know they have an extraordinary amount, of, extraordinary amount of sunshine, but you see resistance to any sort of solar or renewable energy targets statewide. I think there is a correlation between uh, Republican-controlled states and some of the battles that we're seeing, or lack of movement. Right, but I think that that's that's more about the uh, the approach to renewables the Republicans have. It's not um, it's it's not that they're anti-renewables. I think most Republicans, all Republicans, are for economic development in their states. And I think they're getting hit up by their constituents who want to put solar on their rooftops, wind energy pretty soon, according to Andy, hopefully, um, <laughs> and their rural districts. And there's a lot of folks doing aggressive energy efficiency, high-efficiency boilers, all the other things. And there's a lot of jobs in these rural places. When you look at solar energy industry associations, a job survey, a lot of the uh, the sheet metal bending industries for the um, for the um, the structures as well as inverter manufacturing, et cetera, are in many states and many congressional districts around the country. Yeah, and eighty one percent of wind installations are in Republican states. So, yes, I think you're totally right. There is a red state renewable uh, alliance that was formed. Uh, John Fury is the executive director, and they go through a lot of those uh, those statistics about where 
you know, wind and solar really are. It's mostly it's mostly aimed toward wind. Um, another thing that's a really good resource to look at is the rural co-op maps. So the National uh, Rural Cooperative Association has maps um, that you can look at and see where wind and solar and other other renewable resources are. But it's fascinating to see where wind and solar are located and that they are much more in red states. And I think the issue, like Jigger says, is the approach and the arguments and, and you know, do you do you give credit tax credits? Do you do an RPS? You know, how do you approach it as opposed to, you know, is it good economically for the state? Yeah. The Washington Post had a fantastic article last week outlining uh, how this political divide is influencing politics on the state level and in Congress itself. And there are a couple issues that they brought up that I think are relevant. One is that uh, legislature or states that are dominated by one particular party tend to overshoot public opinion and get overexcited uh, and overzealous on issues. And in energy, I think we saw that happen in North Carolina, where they attempted to repeal the renewable portfolio standard. And you saw a lot of people on in both parties stand up and say no. And again, we've talked about that constituency that was developed, and they let lawmakers know that they had overplayed their hand. The second is... Um, Related to Obamacare and EPA regulations. So they talked a lot about how 27 states, most of which were controlled by Republicans, had opted out of the federal government, the exchanges and made the federal government run the exchanges for Obamacare. And that tripped the feds up and made it harder to roll out the law. And I think that there's some crossover with EPA regulations as the EPA looks to states to set their own targets based on their generation mix. And it, it could potentially embolden conservative states to fight those regulations on a state level and hinder the ability to roll out new carbon pollution standards. So I do think there's some crossover there. Yeah, except that, remember, EPA is going to be working with states to figure out also some credit schemes for clean energy technologies. So states that have a high penetration, say, of solar rooftop are going to get much more credit um, for greenhouse gas reductions than other states. So I think it's going to cut both ways in states. Well, I also think that EPA and renewable energy are two different issues. And so when you think about Mississippi right now, for instance, they all hate coal in Mississippi because the new coal plant that just came online raised rates 18 percent. I mean, Mississippi power is a four letter word right now there. Same thing's true with North Carolina. Duke Energy with its new coal plant just raised rates 13 to 17 percent there to be able to pay for that new coal plant. So that was a massive subsidy for coal. And people are realizing, wow, that's way more expensive than just doing energy efficiency and renewables. And so you're finding that while they may not want their coal plants that are existing regulated, they certainly don't want to build new ones and continue to raise rates 18% every time. Yeah, and the polls are shifting. I mean, people do want their, they want clean air and water and land. I mean, they do want some regulation. Um, I think, you know, it's, it, it, it kind of depends on how you ask the question. Do you want the president to do it or do you want clean air? You know, they'll, they'll go different ways depending on, on who they are. But, I mean, public opinion is very supportive generally. How you frame it is so key. And that brings me to one of the last uh, issues that I wanted to bring up also reported in the, the Washington Post this week. So there's this fascinating psychological component to this. And uh, a writer for Washington Post Wonk blog performed an experiment recently, and he took this piece from Rolling Stone called Five Economic Reforms Millennials Should Be P- Fighting For. And it offered a progressive manifesto on economic policies. Conservatives hated it. They trashed it. But Wonk blog's Dylan Matthews took the piece and rewrote it 
as if it were coming from a conservative, advocating the exact same policies. And when he released it, liberals scorned the article and conservatives praised it. And, so, and, and it was the exact same thing in both articles, just framed differently. So Ezra Klein wrote this great article, and, and he, he said it illustrates this tribal psychology that people are willing to accept ideas if it's accepted by the broader party. And so this is a flip-flop that occurs on all kinds of policies like government spying and the health care man the individual health care mandate and it's happening in energy you know conservatives were once leading the way on EPA regulations uh, cap and trade for power plant pollution was a market-based mechanism they once loved and renewable energy targets were this beloved way to get us to energy independence so and they've become dirty words for many conservatives now so I think you know, I'm not exactly sure what this means, but it certainly shows that if you frame issues in a certain way, um, then, you know, you can you can bring people around on an issue. Uh, and it's fascinating. It's this fascinating bit of psychology that I think rounds out this discussion on how parties approach issues. It, it's totally true. That's why lobbyists are actually really important, because it's all how you say it and the words you use. Well, you know, it's one of the most important issues, I think, in this conversation, which is that when you talk to Francis Beinecke at NRDC or some of the folks who actually talked about this on the Green Tech Media um, discussion uh, area for this issue, there's a lot of folks who have defaulted to we need to inve- we need to elect Democrats. And that's absolutely untrue. And this is why I fight so hard against people who say Republicans are bad, Democrats are good, like Francis Beinecke and others. And I think we actually, as a clean tech community, have to recognize that we're nonpartisan. You know, we are really just providing resource efficiency solutions that are far superior than what we're replacing. And I think that 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 message has to get out there and be communicated in the right way to all of the people that we want to be part of our electorate. Well, I found some good uh, Republican champions for clean energy in the House of Representatives, and I'm just going to keep working on it because if you present the argument correctly, you'll get them on your side. All right, on to our third topic, an escalation in the solar trade war. On New Year's Eve, Solar World announced that it is filing new anti-dumping cases with the U.S. Department of Commerce and International Trade Commission, saying it wants to close a loophole left by previous tariffs imposed on Chinese cell producers. In 2012, of course, the federal government sided with SolarWorld and a few other solar manufacturers, concluding that China was engaging in uncompetitive trade practices by oversubsidizing its solar manufacturers and allowing them to dump products in the U.S. So it slapped an average of 31% tariffs on Chinese cell producers, but it still allowed Chinese companies to avoid the tariffs if they sold products through another country or assembled modules with foreign cells. Well, no longer if SolarWorld gets its way. The company is taking its case back to the government to argue for shutting that supposed loophole. Uh, Once again, this is causing hand-wringing, name-calling, and pleas for political compromise. So, Jigger, you have the strongest opinions on this. I know you're not happy about the latest development. What do you think about SolarWorld's latest argument? Well, in full disclosure, I mean, I ran the Coalition for Affordable Solar Energy the first time around. So, I mean, I was definitively on the other side of this (laughs) Um, so I think that you know the argument we made last time was that um, that the that whether or not the Chinese were subsidizing illegally their manufacturing facilities, that the prescription um, that that SolarWorld was writing for this ailment wasn't going to work, 
And I think we were vindicated on that, right? That the, the 31% tariffs didn't actually protect U.S. manufacturing. And even, you know, when you talk to Shail Khan from Green Tech Media, he makes it quite clear that with this first round of tariffs, that manufacturing in the United States would not be cost effective versus manufacturing in China, even without subsidies, just because of supply chain benefits that China has for its entire manufacturing sector. And so this time around, Solar World is saying, we're actually going to go after a very broad brushstroke, including Chinese wafers. And this is important because SunPower and Sun Edison both use Chinese wafers. Chinese wafers have some of the highest um, market share in the world. So Indian manufacturers use Chinese wafers and others. So it literally upset the entire global apple cart yeah. if this um, if this went through. Now, the first case in March, which the ITC and DOC, Department of Commerce and the International Trade Court, um, go after, will be around the scope of this. And so we'll see whether the wafers piece of this actually survives that. But if this actually goes all the way through, the tariffs here, let's say, let's call it 31% from last time, would get assigned to the entire module coming into the country. So if you're paying 70 cents a watt for the module, you'll now be paying 91 cents a watt for that module. So this is a big deal. Yeah, it is. I had a conversation with Shail Khan before we jumped on this podcast, and he said the same thing. And, and there's a lot up in the air with this new complaint, and it's all about how it's interpreted. So Shail, who's our VP of research, basically said that um you know there are a lot of important details that haven't really been mentioned in the press because the language of the petition is so open for interpretation and solar world is basically asking for these import tariffs on Taiwanese cells and also on chinese wafers as you said so this could apply to a huge amount of products basically any chinese wafer shipped in from anywhere and that would have an enormous ripple effect on uh, prices of products coming into the U.S. So this could be much bigger than the 2012 decision, depending on how it's interpreted, um, which makes it a very interesting story for the industry. Well, and the one thing that bothers me, which I think you know, I'd love for Catherine to weigh in on here, is that when this happened in Europe, um, the Europeans actually took this seriously and actually went to China and had a negotiated settlement, the same way that Ronald Reagan had a negotiated settlement with um, the Japanese on cars. But I think that we have this this administration that refuses to help the solar industry. And so we're in a place right now where we can't get the administration to lift a finger in any way, shape, or form to get a negotiated settlement with China. So we're going through this this excruciatingly long judicial process um, where we are going to have nothing but uncertainty in the U.S. market this year on what product people can buy, what the tariffs might be, what the final price of modules might be. This is going to have a huge cloud effect over the 2014 um, U.S. solar market. Yeah, Jigger, I have a question for you. I was wondering um, if you could put something into context for me. So Solar World has this coalition for American solar manufacturing, the CASM, that has you know 240 some companies but they all look like really pretty small companies when i'm looking at the the fairly long list you know two three people not not really big ones who are the people who benefit from what solar world is trying to do well first solar and sun power will perhaps well, not only sun first power. solar yeah only i guess first solar for now yeah sun, sun power has the chinese wafers yeah but, but actually, I mean, Catherine, it's a good point. So because solar manufacturing in the United States has been so weak, right, with Evergreen Solar going out of business and Solyndra and others, um, actually, Solyndra doesn't matter, but um, Evergreen was a crystalline solar manufacturer. Solar World by themselves has enough market share 
in the things that that they're trying to bring a trade case against that they have not had to to coordinate with anyone else in the industry. And this is the problem. When you normally bring trade cases against China, let's say it's the U.S. steel industry or something like that, it's usually the industry together that talks about it, works with the government and says, look, we need to protect our industry. In this case, it's one wingbat German guy, Frank Asbeck, in Germany that makes the decision for the entire U.S. solar industry. He has not gotten the sanctioned permission from anyone from SIA. He has not even coordinated with SIA. SIA was completely blindsided the first time around. This time around, press actually leaked the fact that this was going to happen, but they didn't coordinate with the industry in any way. And that's why this is so disruptive and so unnerving is that 95% of all the jobs in the U.S. solar industry come from non-solar world, non manufacturing job in this area so you know all of those jobs are going to be at risk because of one crazy german dude yeah hard <laughs> hard to see a negotiated settlement in that kind of context then i i wouldn't put it as jigger did but it, solar world from everyone i talked to solar world is very isolated on this absolutely and they basically want to keep their 300 megawatt u.s factory running well but they don't but it's not even profitable i mean the thing with shale's analysis is it he has shown through Green Tech Media's work that the NREL analysis that they did, which said that U.S. manufacturing would only be six cents a watt more expensive than Chinese manufacturing, was patently false. Green Tech Media's analysis shows that the differential between Chinese and U.S. manufacturing is over 20 cents a watt. So what's going to happen is, is that if this tariff goes in, module prices will absolutely go up by at least 20 cents a watt which is extraordinary to me, right? And when you talk to Ying Li and all these other people, they're saying, look, we are not going to manufacture in the U.S. until we can figure out either a way for the U.S. to put in industrial policy, which is what SIA has recommended. SIA has their own negotiated settlement proposal that Ron Resch and John Smear now have put forward. But the administration has not even commented on it. They're not interested in having this negotiated settlement. So my question to you, Catherine, is how do you get the administration off their ass? Yeah, I think they need to get SIA and you know the entire you know that industry group to really weigh in, and I think they have been doing that. They've been working really hard. But whose job is it in the administration to hear this and to actually give us some response whatsoever? They literally won't say anything. When I was at Case, we had hired the Podesta group. I mean, there's no more powerful group that you can go in and get answers from people within the White House, except for of course 38 North Solutions and. <laughs> You know, like we got nowhere, nothing. They were like, this is toxic. We can't talk about it. We're not interested in helping you. Yeah. And we're about to get a new ambassador to China, Max Bacchus. That's um, right. From Montana. So maybe maybe he'll be able to do something to help. Well, there's one silver lining in this, and that is that EU and China did come to a compromise. They came to an agreement about volume and uh, minimum prices. And this does set a precedent for the U.S. And so... Hopefully, U.S. negotiators will jump in here and see that – and the Chinese will be more uh, favorable to reaching a compromise uh, given the enormous scope of this case. So, I, you know, there's a little bit of positivity here given what happened in the EU over the summer. Well, there's hope. But, I mean, <laughs> my, but my bigger take is that, you know, I feel very strongly because I ran case last time um, that that there's – um, 5,600 solar installers in the United States, and many of them got completely screwed by the last case. Some of them actually almost went out of business 
um, trying to pay the ITC duties. And so my big message to all of our listeners is if you're one of those people, get informed, talk to SIA, figure out what your liabilities are going to be. After this March decision comes out, um, you should not be buying Chinese solar panels unless you actually know what you're doing. Um, because if you do, you might actually be subject to these tariffs retroactively and you might go out of business. Well, as this unfolds, we are definitely going to do another show on this, and we're going to bring on Shale Khan or Xiam Mehta, two of our experts in this issue. And uh, there's so many details to this complicated case uh, uh, and so many implications throughout the industry that we're going to have to tackle this again. So good conversation. It's going to come up. Let's wrap up the show now and tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine Hamilton, what kind of surprises do you have for us this week? Yeah, okay. I wonder how many people uh, had read the Department of Energy's Quadrennial Technology Review that came out in August of 2012. I'd like to see a show of hands. No, I didn't think so. Um, (laughs) At any rate, they did a technology review. um, But yesterday, the president announced through a presidential memo that he's going to do a quadrennial energy review. And this is going to be much broader. It's going to try to coordinate across 22 agencies, including Department of Energy, Interior, um, Defense, Agriculture, State, Labor, Commerce, EPA, Treasury, Transportation, you name it. Uh, Almost everybody's involved in this um, to try to to figure out what is our what is sort of our long-term energy policy and they're going to focus on climate change and the electric grid and i think this is going to be a a really interesting exercise for them um i think it's something we desperately need um and so we'll kind of i'm i'm interested in how we engage in this um the white house um john holden the um, white house head of office of science and technology policy and dan utek who's now the new special assistant for energy and climate are going to lead the effort um so it'll be and uh, very, I'm, I'm very curious to see what the process is going to be um, in determining what policies across our government are going to be, you know, helping climate and the electric grid, which I thought that was that was also an interesting um, focal point. So just wanted to, to let you all know about that. Good one. And I'm sure everyone's going to jump on that report now. Jigger, what do you have this week? Anything surprising? Well, you know, the polar vortex happened um, these last few days, and um, and I think as Catherine mentioned before, but I just wanted to highlight, um, we really did meet um, – we did get really big spikes in energy consumption in the PJM, which never happens in the Northeast because the Northeast – unlike Florida, doesn't really have a lot of electric heating. Um, and so it was pretty amazing, um, and, and it caught everyone off guard at the PJM um, on, on these peaks. And it was amazing how demand response really uh, filled the void again. You know, So we didn't have rolling blackouts in this horrendous um, time when it really would have killed people had we had rolling blackouts. And the, so the demand response industry really i think did an extraordinary job there and it's 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 something that we i think take for granted because it's fun and it's an interesting model but in this case it really saved lives i think you just stole Catherine's story from last week i did yeah but, but he built on it that, that was good <laughs> yeah yeah no i absolutely stole it from last week but you know i mean there's other things we could talk about but i just thought it was such of an important story that people are not really focused on no i'm kidding i agree with you it is a very important story so that is a good one And mine relates to Wall Street. Last year, the commodities desk at uh, Wall Street behemoth Goldman Sachs published a pretty interesting piece of research. Um, 
and I, you guys might have seen it, it concluded that the window for profitable investment in coal mining, uh, coal generation, and exports was actually closing. And it looks like the firm is starting to back that thesis up. So earlier this month, Goldman Sachs announced that it was selling its uh, 49% stake in a massive coal export terminal planned for Washington State. This is the project called the Pacific Gateway Terminal. It's been under massive pressure from environmentalists. And we talked about it in November after the elections because environmental groups poured a bunch of money into the county commissioner race to influence the project down the road. Opponents of the project are labeling Goldman Sachs shift as another sign that Wall Street's pulling back on the coal industry. The developer actually claims that the original investor came in with a major capital infusion. Uh, it's prob- they're probably something in it's probably somewhere in between. Whatever the reason, this does look like another step away from coal as a lot of large financial institutions reevaluate their exposure to carbon intensive investments. Yeah, they cited strong competition from gas, which you would assume, but renewable energy too, and energy efficiency. And that marks the end of another episode of The Energy Gang. Thanks so much for being here. We've got links to the stories we talked about on the show over at greentechmedia.com. While you're looking around, you you can subscribe to the show at SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or just grab our RSS feed and use it in the podcast player you like. For comments, questions, ideas, send them my way. My email is Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. We'll be sure to pass around notes to the rest of the team. And also, don't forget to send us testimonials. We'd greatly appreciate those for our marketing. And with that, time to say goodbye to the team. Catherine Hamilton, nice chatting with you this week. Absolutely always fun. And Jigger, same with you. Always a good time. Fantastic to rabble-rouse with you again. Indeed. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you all next week. 